I'll turn your attention again to the reading of God's Word. Our sermon text this morning uh, is found in the 13th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Just a few verses, verses 31 to 33. Let's give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The law of your mouth is better to me. Amen. Would you please be seated? Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you in this moment as the King, clothed in splendor, seated at the right hand of the Father, and, O oh Lord, we pray and ask that you would fulfill that same promise you made to the, to the disciples when you said that you would send your Spirit into their hearts and that he would teach them all the truth. Lord, would you do that for us this morning? Would you let your truth resonate in our hearts and souls? Fill us up, O oh Lord, that we might live for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Um, you probably know that psychological warfare is, is a very significant tactic in the, in the world today. It actually, and actually, you can see psychological warfare going on uh, in the Bible. You remember that moment when, when God called on Gideon. You remember what he, what he told him to do? He said, gather up your men. And he had some 300, just a few men. And they went and they stood outside of the, of the camp of the enemy. And they had jars on top of, the, of, of a torch. Do you remember that? And at, at the proper moment, they broke those jars so that suddenly the camp was flooded with light. And the, and the result was that the enemy encampment was thrown into utter confusion and they began killing one another and they, and they fled. This was psychological warfare um, because Gideon made them think that he had a, there was a major arm, army on their threshold. Uh, Genghis Khan... Uh, did a similar thing. He told all of his men to car carry three torches at all times during, during the night so that the enemy would think they had three times as many soldiers as they, as they did. This is psychological warfare. It's defined as the tactic, tactical use of propaganda, threats, and other non-combat techniques during wars, threats of war, or periods of geopolitical unrest to mislead, intimidate, demoralize or otherwise influence the thinking or behavior of an enemy. During, during the Vietnam War uh, and even during World War II, planes would fly over and drop leaflets in, in Germany and in Vietnam trying to persuade the enemy to believe certain things that may or may not have been true. Today, psychological warfare, you think about it, is a major component of political campaigns. As politicians and the media try to convince you to think a certain way about a certain candidate. We have 
a member of Congress today whose whole campaign was based on lies, none of it being true. But he convinced people that it was, and they voted for him. What does this have to do with Christianity? Well, what if I could persuade you that evangelism is akin to polishing the brass on the Titanic? What if I could convince you that the church of Jesus Christ is destined to fail? How would that affect your outlook on the future? How would it affect your will to engage the culture? Combating its false religion. How would it affect your worship? This morning... As we look at these two parables and the series that we've been going through in Matthew chapter 13, I think, there's one, I think there's one stated objective in these two parables. And that objective, listen, that objective is to teach Christ's followers to proceed with confidence in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to develop in the body of Christ an optimistic outlook on the future, not a pessimistic one. Now, I know, I know that there are some of our friends, our brothers and sisters in the faith, who would teach you that our outlook on the future is that ultimately the church of Jesus Christ is going to end in defeat. Christ will return. He's going to snatch believers out. We're going to go through a period of tribulation, etc., etc., And then the kingdom of Jesus Christ will be established. I used to believe that. But if we go back to the the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, what did Jesus teach us is the next event on the horizon. He's going to send his angels forth as reapers, and what are they going to do? They're going to take the wicked out. No rapture. Jesus wants you, he wanted his disciples to have an optimistic outlook on the future of his kingdom on earth. And our objective this morning is not just just to develop an optimistic outlook. It is having an optimistic outlook to begin thinking of how we can redouble our efforts toward this end as the church of Christ to go out and conquer culture. And the main point that we'll see this morning is that despite small beginnings in size and in influence, Christ's kingdom will be colossal. Despite its small beginnings in both its size and in its influence, eventually Christ's kingdom will be colossal. Now, the first thing that we want to notice from the passage as we look at verses in 31 to 32 is that the kingdom grows from little to large. The kingdom grows from little to large. Now, we notice that it has a small start. It has a small start. Look with me at verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Now, this is is some imagery that you and I are familiar with already. And Jesus taught you how to read this, remember? Because he said, what? The man is 
the Son of Man. The field is the world, right? So this is the activity that Christ is carrying on. So who is planting this seed? Well, it's Christ. This is his activity. And he's taking this mustard seed and he's planting it where? In his field, in the world. Now, there are some people who read this and they say, oh, gotcha. Okay, Jesus said that this is the smallest of all seeds. Do you see now, you Christian, your Bible is totally wrong because it isn't the smallest seed. But there is, uh, there's a simple explanation for this. If you go back and you read other uh, rabbinic literature of this time, you'll find that, that many Jews used the mustard seed simply as an image and they would say things like, look, if you have a, a drop of blood that is as small as a mustard seed, you are unclean. They would use imagery like that. So this is something common. And Jesus is borrowing from the imagery that they already use, and he's using it. He's not saying that it's necessarily the smallest. It's just a manner of speaking to say that the kingdom starts small. In fact, not just small, but really, really small. In fact, if you're a gardener and you're planting cucumber seeds and tomato seeds and you plant a mustard seed, one seed, it's smaller than all those other vegetable seeds, all those other vegetable plants that you plant. The point is, Jesus' kingdom would begin tiny. He wants you to have that expectation. But how does it end? Well, it goes from a small start to colossal growth. Look back at verse 32. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So it goes from, from the tiniest of the plants to the biggest. It towers over everything else in the garden. Jesus' kingdom, he says, will become a large tree. Now, we need to think just for a second about how this growth occurs. How does the growth come about? What, in, in, in essence, what we're saying is how, how does it start? How does it begin? That seed is cast into the ground. What is that a picture of? Well, Jesus teaches us in John 12. He's teaching his apostles there. And he says, listen, in order... In order for wheat to grow, you have to put the seed into the ground. And what does that seed do? It dies. And new growth comes from that death. New life comes from it. This is a picture. Jesus, Jesus himself is the mustard seed that goes into the ground. He goes into the ground in his death and burial. And in his resurrection then, he establishes his kingdom. But what does he teach us? It's not going to be spectacular. He's not going down to Kissimmee, Florida. And buying up thousands of acres of land. And building a castle. And all the people will come to it. It starts small. This is the expectation he's saying to his, his followers in his resurrection and ascension, he inaugurated his kingdom and promises. Listen, he is promising its continued growth. Now, I want you to understand here that Jesus, Jesus is not introducing a new idea. 
But what he's actually doing is going back to the prophets and he is emphasizing something that they have already said. Take your Bible with me and turn over to, let's go to Daniel chapter 4. So much of the Gospels are filled with allusions back to Isaiah and to Daniel. But I want you to turn with me to to Daniel chapter 4. This is after the, um, the moment when Daniel, they were fasting, they wouldn't eat the food that was given to them, and, but the Lord caused them to grow and remain healthy. And so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and I want, I want you to see this. We're going to pick up in Daniel chapter 4, verse 13. Actually, let's back up a little bit. Let's pick up in verse 9. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Now skip down to verse 20, where Daniel explains this vision to Nebuchadnezzar. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Skip over to verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Jesus is borrowing probably from this imagery Or perhaps from the imagery in Ezekiel 17, you can jot this reference down, Ezekiel 17, verses 22 to 24. But what he is showing, you see, is that his tree, the tree of his kingdom, will tower into the heavens. And it becomes a haven, if you go back to Matthew chapter 13, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. It is towering in the garden, a tower in the earth, and it is so large that it becomes a haven for the birds of the air. And you're going to say, well, who are the birds of the air? I I don't know. 
If we go back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it seems like the birds of the air and the beasts of the field are perhaps a reference to the other kingdoms of the earth. That they will come to this kingdom. That they themselves will dwell in its shade. Perhaps it is a reference to you and me. The sons of God and how they will dwell in the branches of Christ's kingdom and that they will raise their families there and enjoy His love. But I think the major point is is very, very clear. That Christ's kingdom will grow. And that compared to all the other kingdoms on the earth, it will be the biggest. And I think understanding this parable, what do you think Jesus wants you to anticipate about his kingdom? As he's speaking to the crowds that are gathered around him and he's speaking to his disciples and he's looking at them and he's just told them, listen, you're, you're going to preach the gospel, you're going to sow it uh, on, on four different types of ground and three of them aren't going to bear fruit, fellas. And also, the other thing that you need to understand is that the weeds are, are going to be there. The, the evil men, wicked men, will be intermixed with the righteous. And now he turns the page and he says, but here's the thing you need to remember. My kingdom will be the biggest. Do you see that? Do you think that he's teaching his disciples to be pessimistic or optimistic about his kingdom? Does he teach you to expect defeat or victory? How would it affect your daily habits? Listen. How would it affect your daily habits if you start to expect the world eventually to be predominantly Christian? How would it affect the way that you interpret the news? Will you think differently? To the disciples, it is clear. That Jesus is telling them, do not be dismayed. You think about the disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts, and where are they? They're, they're gathered in that room, in Mark's house, in the upper room, waiting for the instructions to come from the Holy Spirit as He descends upon them. And there they are, and, and some of them, probably Thomas is sitting there thinking to himself, I felt the wounds, I, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And, and there they are, talking amongst themselves, maybe thinking, how, how does he expect us to go into Jerusalem and Judea? How does he expect us to go to Samaria and all the ends of the earth? How does he expect us to fulfill this mission? Jesus is saying, I'm going to take these humble beginnings and it's going to become great supernaturally great. This tree will stretch into the heavens and my glory will be seen by all the ends of the earth. Let me ask you this question in a little bit different way. Did Jesus command you to pray that his kingdom would come all the while knowing it wouldn't? No, beloved. 
The Lord Jesus Christ wants you to understand that you are not fighting a war that will end in failure. He did not die for a failure. His kingdom will grow from small to large. And the second thing that he shows us is that the kingdom grows from insignificant to influential. Look at verse 33. We go from a man now to a woman who has taken some leaven and she puts it into three measures of flour. Let's read the first together. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like that little bit of leaven. Now, you and I would think, well, this, we're making bread. We're going to take this little jar of dry active yeast and you put it, you put it into this mixture of water and, and into the flour. The, this is more of the idea of, of, of sourdough bread. You take that, that, I believe you call it mother, and, and you, you, you hold that bit of, of leavened dough aside and, and you take, in this case, it would have been about 55 pounds of flour. If you can imagine that, this is a big mixer, okay, commercial mixer. And you take that little bit of, you take that little bit of leaven and you, you plunge it down into that 55 pounds of flour and you put your saran wrap over the top and you slide it away and you leave. And eventually you come back and what has happened to that leaven? This is important. The whole 55 pounds of flour has become leavened. And Jesus is teaching us that his kingdom begins in small in influence. Nobody knows about it. But the yeast is put into the flour. In Luke's gospel, he says that the woman, she took it and she hid it in the flour. Jesus chose a small band of men to lead the early church. You think this is this isn't this always been his way? Think back with me to Genesis chapter 12 and what happened? God called this man by the name of Abram, who for all intents and purposes had no name, no name amongst the hundreds of thousands of people who lived in Chaldea. No reason per se for God to call him, but he did. He called this one man, and he said, I'm sending you down to this land that I have promised. And then he has a son, Isaac. And then Isaac has a son, Jacob. And then a whopping 30 people went down to Egypt. A a mighty force, wasn't it? 30 people against Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, what happened? They became millions. So many people that the Egyptians became afraid of them. This is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ, always considered to be a nothing in the eyes of the world, and yet with God going before us, with the Lord Jesus Christ marching before us, a mighty force. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, remember, many people have seen his power. Many people have seen his power. But he says in Matthew 11, nobody's repenting. What an influential man. What an influential man. In fact, if you look at Jesus' ministry at this point, all the leaders 
of the community are working against him. They're not promoting him. They're not putting his posters on the power poles. They're not asking people to come to his conferences. They're not quoting him on Facebook. They want him to die. And guess what? They had him put to death. Did Jesus lose? What Jesus shows us is that even though his kingdom begins small in influence, it grows large in influence. The leaven permeates the dough. Go back and look again at Matthew 13. Look at these words and take them in. Till it was all leavened. The whole thing, all 55 pounds of flour is now leavened. All 55 pounds is ready to be put into the oven and made into bread. The whole thing, the whole thing. In other words, Christ goes from from rejected by the leaders, rejected by the world, rejected by His people, clung to by 12 men, and one of them, some of them who didn't even fully understand until the day of Pentecost, it goes from these few men to permeating the whole thing. All of it. And again, the question for us is this. What does this teach us to expect of Christ's kingdom? What does it teach us to expect? That ultimately, His kingdom will leaven the whole world? Look over with me at Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war. Anymore. What is the scripture teaching us to anticipate about Christ's kingdom? What kind of mountain will it be? A mountain among mountains? No, the mountain. The mountain. A colossal mountain. A mountain to which all of the nations flow. And do you know that what has happened today? What has happened today? As the sun has risen and made its course around the world, do you know? That in China, and in the Middle East, and in Europe, and in North and South America, and in Africa, as the sun has risen on the Lord's day, do you know that all nations have said, let us go to the mountain of the Lord? Let us listen to Him? Let us hear His law? 
This is why the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 says this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This is a, an allusion to Exodus 19. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a, bu- a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Listen to what he says. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. He's speaking to earthly listeners. You have come in the here and now, where? To Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When we gather, do you see, as the people of God on the Lord's day, what are we doing? We are assembling to Mount Zion, who is seated on the peak of that mountain, the Lord Jesus Christ, arrayed in all of His glory, and all of your loved ones who have died in the Lord are there with Him, with the holy angels, and together we worship through the blood of Christ. That's now. What does this teach us to expect of Christ's kingdom? How, how will it happen? You and I, we pray and we, we want Pentecost to happen all over again. I, wouldn't it be awesome if we could go into downtown Macomb and, and we could set up a microphone or a bullhorn in Iron Horse Festival and preach and 3,000 people would be converted at one time. That would be amazing. But what does Jesus teach you to expect? Leavening the lump. You come occasionally maybe and you pull your pot out and you look down in there and there's all that steam that's gathered on it and you kind of knock it away and you look and you see that there's gradual process, pro, pro, progress. Jesus is teaching you not to expect an ostentatious coming of the kingdom. It's not going to drop down out of heaven. That it will come gradually. Through the small contributions of Jesus' followers, as we die to ourselves and live to Him, we look for Christ's kingdom to come through slow, methodical growth, like leaven, leavening a lump. And here, here, here I think, is the encouragement for, for everyday average Christians. There is no ministry too small. Aren't we sometimes tempted to say, well, I don't, I don't really want to get involved with that. I mean, it's three people. Three people. But if you understand the nature of how Christ's kingdom come, comes, there, there is no contribution too small. Jesus can take the widow's might and he can turn it into an enormous kingdom. How do we contribute? How do you and I contribute to the coming of this kingdom Well, like Christ, by dying to ourselves and taking up our crosses and being willing to die for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You you see, you take Christ with you wherever you go. 
we're not looking for spectacular revivals. We are looking for the slow, methodical, gradual growth of his kingdom in the world. As you and I treat every sphere of life like an opportunity for gospel ministry, doctor's visits, some of you have a lot of them. Hunting trips, employment, education are all about the glory and honor of Jesus Christ and are the means by which he brings his kingdom. And I'll just say, just a moment, I want to remind you of this. Our, our commission is found in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. It's called the Great Commission. And there Jesus has commanded his church to go into all the world and to make disciples. Of whom are we supposed to make disciples? Every man, every woman, and every child, every single one. This is the Great Commission. And so as we pull that back and we say, well, what about Pike County? What is Christ's commission for Pike County? What does he want us to do? Well, he wants New Covenant Presbyterian Church to go into Pike County and make disciples of every man, every woman, and every child, every single one. And so you see, this is what happens when you embrace this is you say, well, this is, this is much bigger than filling our sanctuary, isn't it? I mean, we could, we could fill this sanctuary and we could say, we have work to do. We have work to do because there's 70,000 people in a 20 square mile radius of this church, 70,000. And our objective is to disciple every single one of them. And what Jesus is showing is that despite small beginnings, you look in around this room and you say, well, how, how can we do that? We can't, apart from Christ's enabling. But we must pursue it. Despite its small beginnings and size and influence, Christ's kingdom will be colossal. Did you know that, that the reformers, as the Re- Reformation was going on in the, in the 15 and 1600s, did you know that not one of the reformers walked to church past a statue of himself. Not one of them. In fact, most of them, while they were doing the work of reformation, were were doing it on the run because their work was hated by many. As they were seeking to influence the world for Christ, many of them lived in fear for their lives. Many of them died. Gruesome deaths. Even though they lived in dark days, God was pleased to use their daily efforts to live for him to bring about massive change. Are you prepared to die to yourself and commit to living for Christ's kingdom? What contribution are you making? Remember, there's none too small. Are you prepared to do little things expecting Christ to take it and bring about massive change. What is the next best thing that we need to do to reach our community for Christ? Are you trying to reach your community for Christ? Have you given up? One commentator says this, the way of God is not that of ostentation. That means grandiose things. 
but of ultimate success. These parables, echoing the words of the prophets, teach us to expect the growth and ultimately the dominance of Christ's kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, I think first of all, as as always, we pray and ask that you would leaven us individually. Speaking for myself and my brothers and sisters here in this room, Lord, we all need the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We, We all confess that there are areas of our lives that we've not turned over to you. There are areas of our lives where we still are in ignorance of your law and of what you command us to do and how you want us to live in the here and now. I I think many of us may confess. We say, well, this whole time I've been expecting Jesus' kingdom to be a failure until some spectacular event in the future. Lord, I pray and ask that you would instill within us a new hope in me and in my brothers and sisters, a hope, a hope that we can be bold in this culture and that you will use even the smallest, the smallest of us to bring about the growth of your kingdom. Lord, call to our minds regularly the image of, of the mustard seed, the image of that little bit of leaven going into those 55 pounds of flour. And Lord, would you use us? For this is all about your kingdom, not ours. Help us to be about that business, to focus our efforts on that business. Because only your kingdom, O Lord, is eternal. We pray in your name and for the sake of your glory. Amen.